Life Audio. You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, and we're going to talk about his new book, Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. If you don't know who Oz Guinness is, he is an author, a social critic. He is also the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness of Guinness Beer. And he was born in China during World War II, where his parents were medical missionaries He, uh, a witness to the climax of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, he was expelled with many other foreigners in 1951 and returned to Europe where he was educated in England. He holds a doctorate of philosophy from Oxford, and he's written many, many books, and I'm so delighted to have him on the show. Welcome, Oz Guinness. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So... Your book, Signals of Transcendence, where, where does this title come from and what does it mean? Well, the title is Peter Burgers. He right. was my tutor academically and became my great friend. He wrote a book in the 60s called A Rumor of Angels, much of which he took back he felt was wrong. But he had one chapter called Beginning with Man that has this idea of the signals. In other words, People have these intense, profound experiences, which do two things. They puncture what people believed up to that point, and they point to something which, if true, would make a world of difference. And so they become seekers or searchers, and that's the significance of the signals. And why this book now? I mean, is it because of of the, as you call, the weapons of mass distraction in the world? And there's just, with social media, with media in general, we're just inundated with distractions. And we kind of miss out on these signals of transcendence now. Well, that's true. Absolutely, Beckett. But also, we're in a world where we're told incessantly by an avalanche of polls the rise of the religious runs, the scandals in the church. And you'd think there was no one left believing anything. And that's absolute rubbish. 
in my experience, talking to a lot of people, that hunger for meaning, making sense of life, is as powerful, if not more powerful than ever. And this is one of the ways that people who are convinced atheists and other things like that, they're shaken out of their denials and set off on the road to faith. So I think our culture as a whole needs a grand awakening today. But I want to resist the trends, the polls. You know the old saying, damn the polls, think for yourself. (laughs) That's what I'd like people to do. We hear a lot about the nuns and people giving up the faith. But actually, the really interesting people are those who see if we lose the faith, it's incredibly significant for the West. Take people like uh, Neil Ferguson or Tom Holland. They're what I describe as wistful atheists. In other words, the search is on. And so my book is an encouragement for people who want to search. Yeah, Tom Holland was just on this program. And um, at the end of my talk with him, I actually challenged him on his faith. And um, I just, you know, asked him to really seek and read the Bible and really kind of seek more. And mm-hmm. I feel the same way with Douglas Murray because he's in the same situation where he's kind of Christian adjacent. In other words, this is a time for Christians to have a confidence. The gospel is good news. It's the best news ever in today's dilemmas. And so it's a great time to reach out and share books like this one with those who don't have faith. Yes. And you, in this book, you tell the stories of 10 people who experienced these signals of transcendence and you and they followed them to find new meaning and purpose in life as you say and now how did you decide on these 10 people well you could have chosen a lot of others but these are all people that meant a lot to me i mean c.s lewis very well known some people know him so well as a christian writer they forget he was ever an atheist (laughs) But he was certainly one of those who was enormously helpful in my own journey to faith. So some of them I knew, like Malcolm Muggeridge and my grandmother at the end of the book, and uh, the fashion model, Windsor Elliott, happens to be my wife. So some I knew, many I admire, others I came across. But they're all powerful examples of these signals of transcendence. Yeah, and... and uh let's talk oh but before we talk about specific people in the book talk talk about because you mentioned plato's cave the parable of plato's cave remind us what that parable is about and how that's related to your book because that's important that's an important um thing you bring up in the book well plato's cave is the parable probably the most famous parable in all western thinking certainly outside the bible And Plato describes prisoners who are in the cave, bound by their feet, and the only reality they can see is shadows thrown on the wall by the fire that's behind them, flickering shadows. That, they think, is reality. And he says, that's like we human beings. So that someone who escapes the cave and gets out into the daylight and the sunlight sees an completely different reality. And if they go back into the cave, those inside the cave think they're a madman. In fact, they'd prefer to settle in the semi-gloom of the cave than to escape. It's too much risk and so on. I think that's our world today. Peter Berger describes it as a world without windows. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in the traditional world, it could have been Jewish, Christian, or Hindu, Buddhist, or people who believed in witchcraft. The unseen was not unreal. In fact, it was more real. But in our world today, what's unseen is unreal. The real world, business, science, technology, and so on. So we're living in this windowless world. But many people, that's their shrunken reality. And we who are followers of Jesus want them to see the sunshine and to escape yeah. the cave and see there's something more. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, I forgot who it was, but who t- someone who talked about kind of the, the, the shrunken bed that people try to mm-hmm. sleep in. I forget, who was that? Procrustes. The- yeah, Procrustes, yeah. <laughs> Greek innkeeper. He would have his guests in. If their, bed, if their legs were too long, he'd chop them off. If they weren't <laughs> long enough, he'd stretch them. In other words, he had his ideas and they had to fit that or else. And that's kind of like modern people today. Right. So, I mean, this book is is really, uh, it's a really good kind of push for people to attempt to get out of that cave, uh, Plato's cave, get out of that cave and get into, you know, uh, uh, the light, the sunshine. That's right. But Beckett, as you know, they're stories, they're not arguments. Right. In other words, I personally don't believe, say, in the theistic proofs. I don't think they work. But this is not the sort of book you read a chapter or read all 10 chapters and go, ah, yes, I agree. No, these are stories that should trigger people to think of their own lives and to see whether they're thinking and caring enough to search for themselves. We'll be right back after this short break. Yeah, and so let's get into some of the story, a couple of the stories. Malcolm Muggeridge, you mentioned. Tell us who Malcolm Muggeridge was and what was the turning point? What was the, the signal for him? Well, Muggeridge is one of the most famous journalists of the last century. And he was well known because he burned through things by which he was disillusioned. So he spent three years in Cambridge and considered it the worst three years of his life. He was the first journalist to go to the Soviet Union and see through Stalin when, Mm -hmm. say, the New York Times reporters were believing all Stalin was telling them about rosy-cheeked maidens in the factories and so on. Didn't the New York Times reject his reports from Russia? Oh, yeah. 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 He called them a liar and they they returned the compliment. But, of course, (laughs) history proved him right. But at the time, it left him disillusioned with politics. Then he went to India, the most religious country in the world, he thought. And three years there left him disillusioned with religion. So when World War II broke out and he was seconded to the intelligence service and he was sent to a sort of non-event off the east coast of Africa monitoring German shipping. And eventually one night, as he said, sitting there with stale smoke and stale beer, He thought, well, there was at least one death he could procure in the war, his own. So he decided to commit suicide, undressed and began to swim out into the ocean. But just before he sank, he looked back over his shoulder and the lights of the little cafe, the village he'd left, suddenly, for the first time in his life, struck him as home. He wasn't a stranger in a completely strange universe. There was home. And he said it was like a light shining in Plato's cave. And so he swam back, and for the next decades of his life, he became a seeker 
to look for the foundation, the grounding of how there could be home in what seemed to him up to that point a homeless world. It was the signal that turned him around and set him off on the search. And how long be- between that, that moment in his life did it take for him to actually come to faith in Christ? I think it was about more than 20 years. Wow. Quite a while. He looked at all sorts of things, and he was known as someone who debunked things, as his biographers, many of them say. He knew what he disbelieved long before he knew what he believed. But that search is what spurred him. Yeah. And uh, and then he became, you know, a, a very committed Christian and an evangelist. Very, He was the one who put Mother Teresa on the map with his brilliant documentary, Something Beautiful for God. No one knew about her before that. Oh, that's right. Okay. And what year was that, that documentary? It was in the mm. 70s, right? No, I think in the 60s, but I'm okay. not quite sure. And then you, in another chapter, you talk about Tolstoy. And this this has personal significance for me because uh, with uh, the death of Ivan Ilyich, his novel, I read I read that novel in high school and I remember it having a strong, strong impact on me. Just the idea of death and how, I mean, powerfully written, of course, that novel was. And then his novel, Anna Karenina, also, before, long before I was a Christian, uh, which I became a Christian 13 and a half years ago, but uh, long before I was a Christian, when I read Anna Karenina, I remember when I got to the part with uh, Levin, which was supposed to be, that character was based on Tolstoy himself, I, from what I understand. But um, Levin, Constantine Levin was mowing the grass with a scythe that he, he grabbed from a peasant. And he was mowing the grass... And I just remember, I think he he had this kind of conversion experience while he was doing it. It was like a very long, beautiful, beautiful um, series of chapters that that Tolstoy, you know, writes about. And that his conversion experience really, really impacted me. Um, So talk about Tolstoy. What what was his signal of transcendence? And uh, and let's talk about what what happened with him. Well, it was an unusual one, but you'd think more of us would be struck by it, which is mortality. Now, if you think, he was probably the most famous novelist in the world. He'd written War and Peace and Anna Karenina, as you said. He was immensely famous and extraordinarily wealthy. The count of a huge estate with thousands of serfs and his wife and I think up to 14 children. I mean, no one could have looked more successful and happy. But as you said, that moment when he was struck by his own mortality. And so he asked himself if the absolute inevitability of his death, what did it do to his life and all his success? It made of it nothing. And he became obsessed with it. And that signal drove him on until he came to his rather somewhat eccentric faith, which was the faith of the Russian serfs, the peasants he saw around him but it was mortality that struck him. Now, as I said, that's rare. You mentioned it. I was at a bar the other night, uh, not very long, and the man next to me said, I'm, I hear you're a writer. I'm trying to write a book because I've been struck by my own death. He said, I'm 41, but I've been forced <laughs> to think about death. So relatively rare, 
but one which people think about is profoundly moving. Now, did he write the death of Ivan Ilyich before or after that that moment of... Um... Um, after, I think. And then okay. he, he describes it in his book, Confession, which describes a very serious intellectual search. He was no slouch. And he really thought through all the options. So when the signal sounds, it raises the question that constitutes the seeker, the searcher. But they've got to do the search. And for some of them, it's a long, arduous process, like Muggeridge for several decades. For C.S. Lewis, more than 10 years. For W.H. Auden, just a few weeks. In other words, right. the search can vary. And, yeah, and, but what about what about Anna Karenina? Because, I mean, that the character Levin just seemed to have this conversion experience. And, but, it's, I don't, but I think that was years before uh, Tolstoy had this kind of signal of transcendence. Well, you know, artists often have that intuitive glimpse of things that they don't fully understand at the time, but you can still write it brilliantly. Right. And so I see that it was later uh, they began to see the significance. He gave his famous picture. I may not be describing it quite right, but someone fleeing a monster. I heard this in China when I grew up as a boy. It's an Asian story too. Someone's fleeing a monster and they discover a pit they leap into for safety. But to their horrors, they're jumping down. They see a dragon at the bottom of the pit. So they hang on to a branch and then to their horror, you see the branch is being gnawed by a white rat and a black rat, and eventually the branch is going to give way. So there's a tiger above them and a dragon below them, and this for Tosha is life, and the white mice of daytime and the black rat of nighttime was slowly eating his life away, and death was at the end of it. Yeah, and you mentioned in that chapter on Tolstoy, you mentioned his contemporary Dostoevsky, who wrote, who what who wrote what I consider what it's my probably my second favorite novel next to Anna Karenina Crime and Punishment. Talk about Dostoevsky because I didn't know that I didn't know that he had this kind of mock execution that kind of what really led him to faith. So can you mention talk about that? Yeah, his is very different, and he was a member of not a left wing group but a somewhat liberal group under a very repressive uh, czar. So he was arrested, condemned to death, and imprisoned in the fortress of Peter and Paul, and then taken out to what he later discovered was a mock execution. He didn't know that. So there he was, blindfolded, tied to the stake, the drum beat rolling, and so on. And he thought he was seconds from his own execution by gunfire. And then the Tsar reprieved them. In other words, a kind of psychological terror. But his contrast with being seconds from death and then the glory, the wonder, the springtime renewal of life gave him that incredible sense, quite the opposite of mortality. Life. What was the wonder of life that he needed to discover the meaning of? And what, what led to that mock execution? Well, he'd been a member of this group. They, as I say, they weren't Marxists. So that came much later. But they were just a, a group of young men discussing the repressions of the Tsar and talking about literature and so on. Not very radical, but when you have a very repressive Tsar, anything questioning him is radical. 
and that's what he paid for. Right. And um, and then you you in one of your chapters you talk about Windsor Elliot, as she was called, who 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 happens to be your wife, and she was in she had this moment in Paris, right at at Salvador Dali's a party of Salvador Dali, a bunch of other people were there, and she met Dali's pet cheetah. And that kind of led her talk about that. What? How did that impact her? What? What was her reaction to that? We'll put a bit more of the story. And like you, she came from California, so she went to Westlake School for Girls in USC, and on a whim, went to San Francisco on summer vacation and tried modeling, and did so incredibly well. She went from San Francisco. Never went back to USC. Went from San Francisco to Toronto to Paris to New York and found herself a Ford girl at the age of 19 on the front cover of Vogue. And she was engaged to a photographer who was also a French baron and a multimillionaire and a friend of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor and many of the celebrities in France. So they'd go to Paris for the weekend like some people would go down the road. And one weekend, as usual, they were in a party at Salvador Dali. Imagine Dali, ground zero for surrealism. You know, the men wearing golden trusted uh, Nero jackets. One, <laughs> a woman had an antler, an entire antler in her hair. I mean, incredible surrealism. But amidst all these inc- glamorous celebrities, Dali had his pet cheetah, Babu. And Jenny looked at this, Windsor looked at this, this magnificent creature, defanged, declawed, desexed, de everything. And suddenly, looking at it, it just seemed a caricature of everything it must have been born to be. And she looked up at the people, all these celebrities with all this fancy dress, and she thought, my goodness, so are we. And it was as if an abyss of meaninglessness opened up. And she said to her fiancé, we've got to search for the meaning of life. She'd grown up in an atheist family. And that set her off on the search, that little... uh, Pachita. Wow. And I mentioned this to you. I had a similar experience six months before I came to faith in Christ in 2009. I was in Paris at Fashion Week. I used to go to Fashion Weeks in New York and Paris. And uh, I, in that particular week, I'd gone to a bunch of the, the runway shows and I was, you know, the runway shows have these after parties and they're very <laughs> glamorous. And I was at this one after party at Regine, a club, and it was a club in the middle of Paris. And um, I was sipping champagne. Everyone from the fashion world was there. Everyone was allegedly having the times of their life. Mm-hmm. And I just suddenly looked out at this, the sea of people dancing. And I felt this overwhelming sense of emptiness, utter emptiness. Mm. And I, I thought, you know, it was like Peggy Lee. I just thought, is that all there is? to a fire is that all there is and i and i went back to i had rented an apartment in the marais and i went back to my apartment and i i was up all night just in a panic about my future because i I didn't know how to i didn't know how i was going to sustain myself for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. and i was an atheist and so i just did i was like what am i gonna i don't even know how to even broach this this thing i don't know what to do and so, as God would have it, <laughs> six months later, 
I met some Christians at a coffee shop here in Los Angeles. They invited me to their church in Holly, their evangelical church. I heard the gospel and boom, it was like instantaneous. It was a road to Damascus, instantaneous conversion. And it was, that was uh, on September 20th, 2009. <laughs> and I'm still stunned by it. Well, that's very like Jenny's story. Let, let, let me tell you what went on. I don't tell the whole story in the book, in that chapter. She knew no Christians in New York. And so the editors of Vogue sent her to what we would now say was a medium. And after two years of darkness and wandering from one philosophy to another, she got nowhere. And one day, walking up Park Avenue, she sort of prayed desperately, God, if you're there, I can't find you. You've got to find me. Well, six months later, almost to the day, her mother visited her and had some people in, and she was serv- Jenny was serving them drinks. And one of them looked at her photograph and gasped. And Jenny said, why did you gasp? I, well, I don't think that's a very good photo either. And the person, they said, no, you may not know, but we're Christians. And six months ago, we were going to a prayer meeting in Seattle and we were asked to get some coffee. So we were taking it out through the checkout. And the Holy Spirit said to us, buy that magazine and pray for the girl whose photo is on the cover. <laughs> And this was the photo. Amazing. And that was the very time that Jenny walked up Park Avenue and made that prayer. And and we cut a long story short. Those friends introduced her to watching Billy Graham on television at Madison Square Garden, and she came to faith. Wow. So how long was that between from the the moment in Paris at the Salvador Dali party until she came to faith? I think it was a little over two years. Wow. And the search had led her nowhere. That's her brother was killed in Vietnam. And when she heard the Hinduism and so on, it, it just didn't satisfy. Yeah, it never does. Nowhere in the early days of the search. And I, uh, I would be remiss. And we're going to end on this. But I, um, so what was your, because you, I mean, you have a very dramatic, you have, your childhood was very intense, very dramatic in China. You were raised by missionary parents. What was your signal of transcendence in your own life? You know, I, I made clear there wasn't one. That's not how I came to faith. In other words, not everyone comes that way. And it's often those who are most convinced of whatever they see as the alternative, like atheism. In my case, my first 10 years, I was born in World War II when the Japanese invaded 17 million were killed. We lived in a famine in which 5 million died in three months, including my two brothers, sadly. There was cannibalism. There was no food, no medicine. And we then moved to the capital of of free China, Nanking. So I was there up till I was 10 and two years under the reign of terror. So I had very realistic, to put it mildly, first 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Then my parents were allowed to entrust me to someone else and take me back. They were under house arrest and they couldn't leave China. So my teenage years, I hardly saw my parents. And my own journey to faith was actually more a thinking person's and partly through a friend. I read on the one hand Nietzsche and my hero when I was a teenager was Albert Camus. And then John Paul Sartre. And on the other side, I read Blaise Pascal and G.K. Chesterton. And of course, in England of those days, C.S. Lewis. And I was eventually convinced deeply 
that the Christian faith was true. So I wasn't in a really convinced situation before that of anything else. So I wasn't particularly struck by any signal of transcendence. So I'm not arguing that everyone is, but they're more common than people realize. And so I'm hoping people will listen to these, think of the stories, and then see if someone has experiences like that. So we haven't mentioned it, but the art historian, Kenneth Clark, mm-hmm. he has an incredible experience of feeling, as he says, the finger of God looking at beauty in Florence. And the experience stayed with him for three months, but he said he brushed it off. He'd go back to London, people would think right. crackpot. Now, a friend of mine took that story from his memoir and shared it with a group of CEOs, thinking that maybe one or two of them might have had a similar experience. Out of about 25 or 30, only one or two had not had that experience. So I think many more people have these experiences, but they simply don't know what to do with them. Yeah, and as I as I mentioned, I mean, the two experiences I had, I actually had a few other kind of, of those moments in my life since, you know, since I was young. And uh, I did, I would have this kind of signal of transcendence. I would have this moment and then I would kind of just forget about it and put it back on the back shelf. And, uh, and then, you know, eventually, it, eventually God caught up to me. The hound of heaven chased me down and caught up to me. So well, that's right. And, and Beckett, I should add on Kenneth Clark's story, he brushed it off at the time. And he says that in his memoirs. But then at his funeral, a priest got up and said, Lord Clark wants you all to know, and the royalty of Europe were at his funeral, that he became a Christian six months before he died. And many of the arts world were horrified. What? A deathbed conversion? What a fraud. But his wife got up and said, no, it was genuine. In other words, he brushed it off at a certain stage in his life, but then came back, thank God. In other words, it's never too late. It's never too Well, I mean, that just reminds me of Oscar Wilde had a deathbed conversion, essentially. I, is, I mean, what's your understanding of Oscar Wilde's conversion at the end of his life. I I frankly don't know what to say of that. And there's more stories of Camus himself being baptized in Paris before he died. I hope that's so, because I greatly admired him, but I don't know. Yeah. Well, we're going to leave it there, guys. The book is Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Thank you, Oz Guinness, for coming on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Beckett. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Thank you to the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us. If you go to lifeaudio.com, you will find more faith-centered podcasts about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. Hello, my name's Rachel Carmen, and I want to invite you to come over and listen to my podcast. It's called Real Refreshment. For years and years as a young mother, I chased after the wind, thinking that the world could offer me the refreshment I longed for. 
but it was only when I discovered it in the person of Jesus Christ that I really found refreshment. Come on over and join me as we dig into Bible study. I'll see you there.